Welcome to the Portland Countdown, a project of the World Parkinson Coalition made possible with support from Parkinson's Resources of Oregon. I'm John Palfreman. And I'm Dave Iverson. Each month, John and I will take a look at a specific topic of interest in Parkinson's disease as we count down to the Fourth World Parkinson Congress in Portland, Oregon in September 2016. And John, we're going to begin our series with a conversation with Andrew Lees, professor of neurology at the National Hospital in London. And we'll be talking with him about both the history of Parkinson's as well as where we are now with Parkinson's disease research and treatment. And part of what I think is interesting as, as you look over the history of this disease is, is sort of what's changed and in some ways also what hasn't. Right. Well, Parkinson's has probably always been here. There are references to something that sounds an awful lot like it in the ancient Indian Ayurvedic texts written thousands of years ago. And there's even a character in Shakespeare, one of Shakespeare's plays who quivers with the, the palsy. So Parkinson's, before it was called Parkinson's disease, existed. And after Parkinson's, there were, as we'll hear from Andrew, there were clinicians who pretty much wrapped up most of the clinical signs and symptoms within a few decades. So let's begin with our conversation with Andrew Lees. And we started out uh, by talking with him about what it was that James Parkinson observed on the streets of London nearly 200 years ago observations that he wrote about in his famous essay on the shaking palsy. What he described was a syndrome in the true sense of the word, and he, he was able to do that by uh, following six patients over a period of time. So he was able to see the evolution of the condition in some of the people he saw in the street and linked together a group of symptoms which previously had been recorded but hadn't been linked together so his major contribution was that he was able to bring a group of disparate clinical symptoms together and by follow-up and careful observation over a period of time able to show that they probably constituted or, or might constitute a disease entity. So he did pretty well, but a few years later, Jean-Martin Charcot extended the clinical description a bit further. Is that correct? The great neurologist Charcot and Trousseau in France, um, Urban, Oppenheim and Romberg in Germany, and particularly Gowers in England, all added additional physical signs and symptoms to Parkinson's original picture. So, for example... But Parkinson, because, of course, he didn't examine any of the patients he studied, missed rigidity. And perhaps more surprisingly, he also missed that the handwriting changed to become small and cramped. But really, his description was fairly thorough. One of the things, Andrew Lees, that I think is interesting when you go back and look at some of those early observations by the people in the 19th century, like Charcot, is that they did have a fairly robust understanding, it looks like, of many of the symptoms of the disease. And Charcot in particular noticed that tremor didn't appear in everyone. And it's interesting because we now, of course, think of Parkinson's being so idiosyncratic that each person sort of has their own version of the disease. And it seems like even then there was some sense of that. Is, is that right? Yes, I think Charcot was the first to draw attention to the fact that uh, you can have uh, the body language and the clinical picture of Parkinson's without the presence of tremor. 
whereas, of course, Parkinson's original description emphasized quite strongly the presence of tremor. So this was already a, a kind of broadening of what we might include under an umbrella term of Parkinsonism. If you read, for example, Gower's 15 pages on paralysis agitans in his Manual of the Diseases of the Nervous System, it reads like a textbook description of Parkinson's disease that we recognize today. So he didn't miss very much. And what about as far as their early sense of treatments? If they, if they had this pretty robust understanding of what the disease looked like, at least from physical appearance, but did not have an understanding of really what was causing the disease, what were some of the early treatments that, whether it was Charcot or, or others, tried? Well, uh, some of the early therapeutic suggestions came from patient uh, observations. So one of Charcot's patients told him that when he went into Paris in his carriage and traveled over the very bumpy roads, the, the vibration and the bumping of the carriage on the pavements actually seemed to improve his stiffness. And Charcot then developed what he called a fauteuil trepidant, a, a chair which uh, vibrated in his consulting room and actually used a high-frequency vibration as a very early physical treatment to try and help Parkinson's disease. And there is still considerable interest in that sort of approach to helping uh, with rigidity in, in Parkinson's disease. Hmm. Fascinating. John? Andrew, can we talk a bit about today's therapies? It's, it's said that treatments can be lumped into two categories, really, what, what are called symptom-modifying treatments and disease-modifying treatments. If we start with symptom-modifying treatments, there's drugs and surgery. Now, you as a, a neurologist must have been completely absorbed in the breakthrough of L-DOPA in the 60s and, and thought this was a revolutionary um, new, new therapy. Can you describe that? Yeah, well... Of course, it was the 60s, so we, we thought we were going to change the world anyway, for not just with respect to the treatment of Parkinson's disease, but there was great optimism that major changes were afoot. But certainly within two or three years of L-DOPA being widely introduced, the benefits which in severely disabled patients could be spectacular and almost miraculous. It, it was hoped that this might be the pathfinder for a, a new generation of different treatments working on different chemical messengers in the brain that would solve not just Parkinson's disease, but um, Alzheimer's disease and motor neurone disease and all the other uh, unpleasant, brutal neurodegenerative disorders that are out there. But of course, if we look at it like that, then the last 50 years have been pretty disappointing. We haven't really replicated the, the benefits of L-DOPA. It's still, and this is a sort of depressing fact, I suppose, still out 50 or 60 years after it was an introduction, it's still generally considered by neurologists as the most efficacious of, uh, of all the treatments. And so L-DOPA is still out there, and um, we have a raft of other symptomatic treatments which, although not as efficacious as L-DOPA, are still very useful in the everyday management of symptoms in people with Parkinson's disease. So we're grateful that we have got these other drugs, but they've not been sort of... Uh, game-changing uh, treatments, if you like, um, since L-DOPA. 
if in the last 50 years there hasn't been anything to compare with L-DOPA, what about other things? What about disease-modifying treatments that seek to modify the course of the disease? I'm thinking, for example, of neural grafting, using stem cells or fetal transplants, that kind of thing. Or, for example, using neurotrophic factors. Those are kind of growth factors, which are chemicals which are designed to revive weak or damaged neurons. What do you think of that? Well, I'm not sure I would even put those two examples that you've given in that category. I see, uh, I mean, they may be in that category, but I see that really as a sort of spare part surgery that what one's trying to do with those approaches, and I think they're very valid and exciting approaches, is to replace as physiologically as we're able to do the dopamine system. And I think despite L-DOPA's striking benefits, it probably isn't as physiological as we would like. It's not like you're producing your own dopamine in the brain and releasing it. So I think the hope is that those two approaches that you've mentioned might do a better job at getting a better dopaminergic system in place. I just was curious to pick up on, on that a, a bit about what is actually disease-modifying and, and what isn't. But it sounds what you're also saying, Andrew, is that that doesn't really get at the heart of fixing the disease because we know that in time some of those graphs, even if they take on people wind up with other problems later on, that the telltale sign of Parkinson's disease, the Lewy body formation in the brain, those sticky clumps of protein come back anyway. So what you're really talking about is trying to get at something that would, that would stop the disease as opposed to, as you put it, doing something that is, is sort of a spare part fix. I'm talking about it, but that doesn't mean I'm not enthusiastic about cell-based therapies. I mean, I think we don't know actually what would happen. For example, if we could diagnose Parkinson's disease very early and put a, a perfect fetal graft or a stem cell graft into that patient from an, at a very early stage, uh, we really don't know what the outcome would be. So it could be that by doing that, we do stop the disease in its tracks and people don't go on to get falls and postural instability and, and balance problems. And in fact, there is a multi-billion pound trial going on uh, in Europe now called Transneuro, which is in fact uh, another round of fetal implantation cells trying to do the operations better, trying to select the patients better and trying to get more information for proof of principle while we're waiting for the stem cells to be ready to be put in. So I'm quite an enthusiast of cell-based therapies, but I, I don't think I, it's possible to say at the moment that I don't think we can say that these are disease-modifying treatments with, with any confidence. We just don't know. Well, part of what is intriguing about, um, I think, this discussion is that what makes disease modification so complicated is that we now know Parkinson's is a disease that goes well beyond the traditional movement disorder definition of it, that there are all these other problems that are associated with the disease, whether that's from low blood pressure to constipation to loss of sense of smell to a variety of other uh, problems. So to figure out how to modify this disease isn't quite as simple as perhaps we once thought. 
you know, I, I would accept that this group of symptoms, which have been broadly called non-motor symptoms, have been neglected and they haven't been built into trial design. But really the evidence that a lot of them are more common in people with Parkinson's disease than in an age-matched population is questionable. For example, if you do geriatric clinics of elderly people, you will find that urinary problems are extremely common, constipation is extremely common, pain is extremely common, and really nobody has found the pathological substrate for the cause of pain or the cause of, you know, there's speculations about the cause of the constipation, of course, because the bowel has Lewy bodies in it and so on. So, But I, I do think we have to be very careful about putting these things in as integral features of Parkinson's disease. And I think that, that applies particularly to the very important issues about dementia and Parkinson's disease. Now, you don't see dementia in people with Parkinson's disease who have had the disease for more than 30 years if they developed it when they're 30. There may be an occasional exception, but it's extremely rare. I, I have many patients who have developed young onset Parkinson's disease and have, uh, are now in their late 60s and are cognitively sharper than me. And so that says to me that there is something related to getting old which is impacting on the primary pathogenic process of Parkinson's disease. And of course, people with Parkinson's disease now live longer. We've extended their life expectancies now. It may still be reduced compared with people who haven't got Parkinson's disease, but you know, most people with Parkinson's disease live into their late 70s at least now, and many into their 80s, even if they get the disease in their 50s or 60s. So I think the issue of one needs to be very careful with this broadening of the syndrome. Andrew, it is true to say that with some longitudinal studies of Parkinson patients, like the one in Australia, that most of the patients at the end were, suffered from cognitive problems. I mean, there is a certain amount of evidence of that. That's true, but they were mo mainly in their 80s, and you have to remember, the ones who survived were a small handful of the total. Um, so th these were very long follow-up times of 20 years. So you, you have to remember that one in three people uh, who don't have Parkinson's disease will have dementia by the... I know that the figure that they reported there was much higher than one in three. It was 70 or 80 percent. But nevertheless, I think there are quite a lot of confounding factors. And I would say that that was what we would call a surviving cohort at the end, rather than something that you could roll out as broadly representative of everybody with Parkinson's disease. So I'm sure all of you know some of my colleagues will get up and say that there's an 80% chance that people with Parkinson's disease will get dementia. And I certainly would very strongly reject that on the basis of, of my personal experience. I think that's far too high a figure. Interesting. So what about what, what are called prodromal symptoms that come before a diagnosis of Parkinson's is given? You mentioned um, constipation, but uh, REM behavioral sleep disorder loss of smell, these things are, are, are argued by, in some quarters as being signs that, that predict the, the occurrence of Parkinson's later. Do you think the evidence is good on that? 
Uh, no, not that good. But I mean, I, I think uh, we, you know, obviously the academics and, and doctors who have a, a vested interest in finding a cure for Parkinson's disease, it, it, we, we have to get better at diagnosing the disease as early as possible so that when we do have these new treatments that hopefully will interfere with the chemical pathways that cause Parkinson's disease, we're ready to go and we can pick up groups of people who might be at particular risk. So I'm, I'm very supportive of the idea of looking for early diagnosis. But again, we've talked a bit about constipation. So it, it's kind of constipation in the general population is a pretty common thing. Loss of smell is much less, of course, and is probably a, a better at risk non-motor marker. I, I think we also need to be better at looking for subtle disturbances of movement. I mean, many patients of mine will tell me that they think they probably had Parkinson's for 20 or 30 years when they look back now, and that some of the things that they say in hindsight might, might have been are, are transient and subtle disturbances of movement that they might have had, which they haven't thought much about, but they've kind of put them to one side, but when they look back, they think they may have been a significance. I, th I think REM sleep disorder is also very complicated. I mean, I think if you ask newly diagnosed patients and you do all the REM sleep uh, disorder questionnaires and all the, all the things, uh, whether they've had REM sleep, the actual frequency of REM sleep disorder in newly diagnosed patients seeing neurologists with motor problems is very, very small. It's less than 1%. Of course, if you turn it around and you go to a sleep laboratory and you, you're looking at people with REM sleep behavior disorder, then within this very selected cohort of people um, who are presenting with sleep disorders to sleep specialists, then a significant proportion of those might well go on to get Parkinson's disease. But I think that if you take the, the, the sort of Parkinson's disease critical mass load as a group, uh, I suspect that that's quite a small group within the big group. Right. So you can see I'm a bit, I mean, I'm not skeptical about it, but I think we have to be, we're in danger of uh, over-interpreting all this and, and getting a bit too uh, over-enthusiastic about it at this point. I think we need more solid data from good prospective studies before we can make any generalizations. Andrew, perhaps we could sort of start to wind up by asking, what do you think are the most exciting areas that patients should look to for the future for Parkinson's disease research? Well, I think, you know, I think we, first of all, we haven't had a new treatment for Parkinson's disease for seven years, which is certainly the longest period during my career as a neurologist. We've gone without some new licensed treatment for Parkinson's disease. There is one possibly just coming, safinamide, but neurologists really don't have much hope that that's going to make major changes to things. So we have a problem with the pipeline. If I had millions of pounds to put into research, I, I think I would put them into cell-based therapies at the moment and try to see if we can get these grafts or the, the trophins to work. I, I'm less excited about the vaccines uh, and the synuclein modifiers, but of course this is a very valid area of research, and I think the lesson probably from history is that we shouldn't 
put all our eggs in one basket when it comes to research. I mean, neurologists and scientists seem to be a bit like journalists. If you get a story, everybody goes for that story, and they don't. They all follow the leader like sheep rather than um, going for their own original story. So I think there is a desperate need for um, free thinkers. That was British neurologist Andrew Lees. And John, part of what I found um, fascinating about our, our conversation with Andrew is that on a number of fronts, he seemed to sort of gently push back at, at conventional wisdom. Um, one of the things that he seemed somewhat skeptical about is this idea, for example, that Parkinson's isn't just a movement disorder, that it includes all these other issues from sleep problems to constipation to urinary difficulties and so forth, which, which we hear lots about these days in the Parkinson's world. And he seemed to be saying, in part, not so fast. Yeah, and this is really the big idea in Parkinson's, that it's not just a motor problem, it's a systemic disorder that starts long before you get the motor problems with sleep and sleep disorder and constipation and goes on to develop into horrible things like cognitive impairment and dementia. But he seemed to be questioning that. And not only that, he seemed to be questioning the underlying theory which says that all this systemic damage is caused by a sticky molecule called alpha-synuclein which jumps from brain region to brain region. It's a very powerful idea which drives a lot of the research these days, right? I know. And, and of course, this is, in fact, our, our next subject. Next month on, on this series, we'll be digging more deeply into the question of alpha-synuclein and whether or not stopping that sticky protein is the key to stopping Parkinson's disease. And, and he did seem to express some hesitation about whether or not we should sort of put all our chips on that solution. It, it, it reminds me a bit of something the legendary neurologist Bill Langston, someone you know well also, said to me once a long time ago, which is he, he said, you know, in, in science we sometimes get too close to our own theories. And he said, it's, it, it's okay to sleep with your hypothesis, um, but you sure shouldn't marry it. And it seemed to me that that's sort of what he was saying here too. You know, hold on here before we bet completely, bet the farm on alpha-synuclein, um, we might be wise to consider some other possibilities as well. So on that note, we'll bring this first podcast to a close. I'm John Palferman. And I'm Dave Iverson. Until next time on The Portland Countdown. Portland Countdown is brought to you by the World Parkinson Coalition, with technical support provided by Danny Bringer. Special thanks to our expert guests who make this series possible and who serve the Parkinson's community. Support for Portland Countdown comes from Parkinson's Resources of Oregon. If you enjoyed this podcast, visit WPC2016.org to learn about the upcoming Fourth World Parkinson Congress in September 2016.